The reading today is Song of Songs, chapter 6, verses 4 to 13. That's on page 684 of the Church English Bibles. So Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4 to 13. He, you are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favourite of the one who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Friends, who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? He, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realised it, my desires set me among the royal chariots of my people. Friends, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. He, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? I should have put my hand up. There's no Bible here. Could I have the Bible? <laughs> I might need it. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Hannah. There is one there that you can have. Uh, let's pray before we look at that together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the way your word speaks to us. Thank you for this amazing love story we've seen unfolding in the Song of Songs. And we pray today you would show us wonderful things in your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders at the church here. I'll be opening up this passage to us today. Um, just to say, before I start, I want to mention a special book deal we have at church today. So um, if you've been, as we've been going through Song of Songs, you'd like to think more about it, I want to really recommend this book, Jesus, Lover of My Soul by Julian Hardiman, which is basically... Um, if you're in the habit or you want to get into the habit of reading the Bible and praying every day, it's short chapters, short readings like that based on Song of Songs, helping you think through in the way that we've been thinking it through here. Now, you can, see, you can buy one over there at the end. Uh, someone will be selling them. Ten pounds in the shops, about seven pounds here today. Um, thank you for that little murmur of excitement. I appreciate that. So uh, if you do want one of those, I highly recommend it. I used it in my like times that I pray and read the Bible uh, for, for, it's about 30 chapters, so about a month it took me, <laughs> a bit longer maybe. Uh, so uh, I really recommend it, and you can buy one over there today. We can take card payments. Great. Let me uh, start actually by talking from another and totally different book. Um, this book, Jess Phillips is a Labour politician, 
and she's written this book called Every Woman, which is all about her view of the world and women, um, women's role in the world. And this is what she says about men. We need, that's women, every man who sees his mate touching a woman's bottom to speak up. Don't laugh. It's not just one of those things. We need every man who hears, another, who hears another man referring to a woman as worthless, or a whole lot of other words I don't want to say in church, we need him to speak up. No one should ever let the statement she was asking for it pass without comment. If men think their mates, their sons, their dads are being a bit leery, they need to tell them to pack it in. Most of all, when a woman says this happens to her, don't tell her she's wrong. Don't think she means all men. Don't think it means she thinks you're like them. Just listen. If every man who was on the side of women spoke up, it would drown out the loud minority who don't support women. Let, don't let those people be the voice that stands out. This is not an us versus them issue. Women fighting for their right to live free from violence are not attacking men, they are defending women. The more men who join us in the fight, the less it will happen. All I ask of every man is simple. Please just tell us that you believe us. Otherwise, we will carry on keeping it secret, taking it as if we deserve it. Well, Jess Phillips is no fan of Christianity, if you read the rest of her book, and with a vastly different views to me and to what we would teach here on all sorts of things, I guess, especially in issues of reproductive health. She's a strongly feminist politician, and it appears to me that at least part of what she is saying is this. Women being safe and free to live their lives relies on men making good choices. Men have power. Men are much more likely to be violent than women. That comes out very strongly in the book. And then because men tend to be biologically stronger, social structures emerge that give men power. And here is her call for men to use the power that they have to form environments where women can at least not be attacked, at best actually flourish. Now here at Christchurch, we're not ashamed to teach, because we think the Bible teaches it, that there are differences between men and women. You're not just a soul accidentally put into a gendered body. Our bodies are part of who we are, made to reflect a perfect spiritual reality. And because of that, we teach, because we think the Bible teaches, that those differences should be recognised in who does particular jobs in church life and how people behave in their families. Now, I guess that Jess Phillips, along with a lot of other secular people, would not be impressed by that. In a sense, I don't care. We do it because the Bible says it, and we believe that's God, how God reveals himself. But it's not just an irrational thing, this men and women behaving differently. You know, we do it because God says it, and we just have to suck it up. It makes sense of something that she, Jess Phillips, has noticed. The truth is, the leadership the Bible describes men taking in certain settings is very close to what she's asking men to do. The world operates in a way that is much more dangerous for women than for men. 
and men need to step up to do what is difficult, to sacrifice themselves, to allow the strengths of women to be seen and celebrated. If you think about the way the world works, women are strong, but so much of the strength of women is hidden, often at home. That's in the world. Women are quietened down whilst actually being the strength that holds everything together. But we have a totally different picture here in Song of Songs. We've just had read to us by Anna. Here we have the groom. And remember the groom in Songs of Songs is an absolute monarch. So he has no expectation to celebrate anyone except himself. That was the way kings operated in the ancient world. But here he is in Song of Songs 6 celebrating the strength of his bride, telling out her beauty, which is strength. And so the story and the call to us, which is actually written on our bodies, is that men use the influence they have through being men to forward places where the strengths of women are allowed to flourish and be seen and be celebrated. As a church elder, that's my job. If you're a husband, that is your job. Wherever you have power in life that comes from being male, that is how you should use it if you're a man. But this song, remember, it is the song of songs. It is much more than a guide to male-female relationships. It is about how the groom Jesus loves his bride, the church. It is a description of how Jesus loves you if you're a Christian. And God has chosen to write that story, not just in a book, but in the way human beings are made. So there's things to learn about that too. But we say every week uh, at church that what we're about is meeting Jesus Christ. Let's do that first. And we'll come back to men and women later. Here's the first thing we see in this passage today. The church's beauty is strength. Remember the story that's unfolding here if you've been here. We have the uncertain woman. She's been told that she's not beautiful and not worthy in her society. And she is longing for the love of her groom, who is both a king and a shepherd. And when she finds him, he looks her in the face and tells her that to him, she is beautiful. She dreams about being included in his family and close to him. Uh, She welcomes him to the wedding, and after they're married, they're united to each other after he speaks words of confidence to her. It's an amazing love story, and it's our story. We all have a longing to be loved as we are, and we find that well of love in our perfect shepherd king, Jesus. We get to be in his family. We get intimacy with him. And the promise is while we hear his words of assurance now, one day every Christian will be perfectly united with him. And God invented marriage and sex to help us understand the deep desires we have to be united to God. But you might remember if you've been here, there's been trouble in this love story. She rejected him. And so he went away. And she realized that the world without the protection of their shepherd king is harsh and frightening. And many people think that's basically the retelling of the story of God's people in the Old Testament, the bit of the Bible before Jesus. And she gets back to him by remembering his greatness and strength. 
she discovers he is where he always was. And it's a picture of the times we push Jesus away. We lose him. When we remember his grace and glory, we find him again. He isn't hiding. That's where we got to in the story. She's found him. But here is the question. What will he say after all that? That's a big question. Perhaps in your life, you've had a short period of turning away from Jesus to sin. Or you've had a long period in the sort of spiritual wilderness. Jesus wants you to return to him, but how will he receive you when you do that? What if you really shamed him? You did something that made it look like he doesn't matter, like he is rubbish. What if you fear you've put others off him and let the church down? What if other Christians are judging you? For how you've lived. Or you're just less excited than you should be. How does Jesus react to you coming back? He has endless power. How is he going to use it? Well, in verses 5 to 7, basically, the groom just repeats something he said before. He repeats something he said when they were in the first flushes of their love, before this rift was between them. She goes back and finds him where he is, and he is still saying the same things to her. Now, they're strange images to us. The hair is like the flock of goats, the teeth like a flock of sheep. We've talked about those before. They're pictures of the land that they lived in, the picture of God united to his people in a perfect place. The thing worth seeing in her is seeing here, though, is that his appreciation of her has not changed in its strength or love or affection. In fact, he says in verse 5, he is overwhelmed with love for her when she returns and looks back into his face. Listen, because Jesus is so great and so perfect and so good, we think he must, there must be something in him that is sighing and disappointed and let down when we wander away. I mean, all good people, even the very best people you know, they have something about that about them, don't they? I mean, if you're a parent, you will know sometimes your children disappoint you and they're really messed up. And you will always love them and you'll always welcome them back. But you know, your frustration at their choices still sort of leaks through to them, doesn't it? It's like, well, well done for realising your mistake. I mean, that's even the best parent gets a bit of that in them. And so we think that must be that way with Jesus. But that is not right. If we reject Jesus, he is only as delighted as he ever was to have you back in communion with him. You're still part of his inheritance that he loves and is beautiful to him. If you've gone off and done something that you know is wrong, what might stop you coming back is that you doubt Jesus' delight in you. I wonder if that is particularly something that women feel, and that's why it's helpful that this story is about a man welcoming a woman back, because of sometimes very misguided cultural ideas about purity. And women are made to feel they're not pure enough to come back to God. 
I want you to know whenever you come back to Jesus, he deliberately appreciates you in just the same way as when you came at first. Sometimes people put that onto Jesus or onto Christians as a way of not returning to him. I feel bad. He won't want me. They will judge me. It's as if we're dying of thirst, but looking for reasons not to drink the long frosted glass of water in front of you. But really it's there. His delight is for you. She is more than just the same to him, though. He compares her in this poem he says about her twice uh, to cities and twice to armies with banners. Verse 10, we have majestic as the stars in procession. Uh, That's a strange translation. That's really another army reference. And verse 11 and 12, everybody's confused about what those means. I was speaking to our resident Hebrew reader in uh, in the office the other day, and they even said it's very hard to understand. We had a whole discussion about it, but whatever's going on in verses 11, 12, he goes looking for fruitfulness in a garden, which is like common in the book of the love that makes everything bloom around them. That's a picture of what we get when we're united to Jesus. We bring the Garden of Eden back to the world, like at the start of the Bible, but he ends up among chariots. That's why I've got these two pictures on the screen. Cultural, sort of bad, sexist views of beauty. View beauty as the picture on your left. Sleeping beauty, helpless, waiting for the prince to kiss her so she can come to life. Weird story, don't you think? Whoever thinks, that's a nice corpse, I'll give it a kiss. <laughs> anyway, uh, she, um, the bit... That's not the type of beauty we're talking about. The beauty that impresses him in her is awesome with the army, uh, like an army with banners. She's not feeble needing rescuing by a strong prince. She, through her strength, has come back to him, and he loves that in her. And at the end of the passage, the friends comment on her beauty. They call her the Shulamite, and they say, come back so we can see how beautiful you are. And he says, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? I've been trying to learn how to say that. That in itself is a military reference. So he's basically saying, stop looking at her beauty. Look at her strength. Jesus' bride being like an army, I guess, is almost easier to understand than being a bride. It's easier to imagine us as the group of people that we are. What he's saying here is this. Coming back to Jesus in some senses is easy because he is so welcoming. But in some senses, it's very hard. It's a fight. It's a battle. If you're trusting Jesus today, you are fighting pride. You're fighting laziness. You're fighting yourself. We know he will have us back joyfully. We don't want to let go of what is stopping us. I don't know whether you've ever seen that illustration about monkeys and a nut in a jar. And the monkey reaches in to pick up the nut. They're desperate for the nut. But they can't get their hand out of the jar without letting go of the nut. We are that monkey when it comes to Jesus. 
It's not that he requires anything of us to come back to him, but we are like, oh, no, but I don't want to let go of this thing. I'm fighting to let go. Think about the way it is often coming to church. Maybe you today, maybe today you were fighting to get up. You were fighting to get out of the door. You were fighting with your spouse. You were fighting with your children. You were fighting your tiredness. You were fighting your regrets. And I say, listen, it's easy to come to Jesus. It should be easy. It's so welcoming. Jesus sees the fight. He sees the army-like impressiveness, and he credits that. Jesus is not standing back saying, oh, come on, guys, it should be easy to come to me because I'm so glorious and great. He gets it's a fight, and he loves his bride who's like an army. He loves the fight that's got you here. I hear a lot of stories of things that Christians in our church have to do day by day. The grace they show under immense stress, their self-giving love for their children, the way they have to think about how to speak up at work, when they take the step and invite friends to things, their battles against loneliness and depression and illness to trust Jesus. If you're facing any of those, those things are not nothing to him. His bride fighting to get to him is awesome, like an army with banners. And think about what that bride of Jesus, the church, has done in history. It's very modern, very Western, to see Christianity as sort of negative and colonial. But to be honest, the church, while it has many faults, it is the church that has invaded the world with the love of God. In the hardest places in the world, you will find Jesus' bride empowered by their union with him doing amazing things. There are people in agencies doing things in the world that are good, and they're not at all Christian now, but they were started by people who were empowered by their union with Jesus. I remember once I was in an online discussion, total waste of time, <clears throat> but someone was saying, wouldn't it be better just if Christianity had never existed? And the person replying in the online discussion said, here's all the agencies in the world that were set up by Christians, um, and then none of these would exist if Christianity had never existed. Like the United Nations and, you know, all of these, Bernardo's, Save the Children, all of these organizations that were set up by Jesus' bride. Then he said at the end of the thing, if none of those existed, you'd be so depressed, you'd need to call the Samaritans. But they wouldn't exist. <laughs> set up by a Christian. Jesus' bride is this army with banners fighting death and destruction in the world. And the bride's stories, the little stories of people we never remember, loving their enemies, serving their community, giving stuff up to start new churches, come to Jesus and he's like, you are majestic to me as an army with banners. Did you see he's also emphasizing the uniqueness of his bride to him? Verse 8, this is a slightly seedy bit of the passage. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. Ancient kings could have as many wives as they like, and as well as wives, a group of women who were just sort of there to service their needs. They were usually enslaved from other countries, concubines. 
He basically says, even if I could have all of them, I only want my dove, my perfect one, my unique one. Passages like this have made us think of what Christians have called the church militant. That is the church getting out in the world and doing stuff. And the church is not just a club where we say comfortable things to each other. We're a body of people transformed and sent into the world to love our neighbor and make disciples. But let me tell you, the world does not love the church militant, no matter how much good we do. The strength to live out this self-giving, Jesus-serving, people-loving battling is in knowing that gaze of Jesus on his dove, his perfect one that he loves. A phrase we sometimes use at church is identity in Christ. It's not a phrase I love, but we say to people, find your identity in Christ, but people are sort of like, oh, it's slippery. What does that mean to find my identity in that? Well, it's this. How you think of yourself will affect the choices you make and how you live. Whatever you think of yourself will affect the choices you make about how you live. Now, you can give the power of how you think about yourself to other people if you want. You can let what other people think of you dictate how you live. That is a dangerous game. Or you can say, well, forget about what other people think. Just please yourself. That's just selfishness. Here is the truth. There is only one person whose thoughts about you matter. That is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over everything. And he's the only person in all of history who gets to judge other people. It's Jesus. He's the only one whose thoughts about you matter. What is he thinking then? If his thoughts about you are the ones that matter, what is he thinking? He is thinking. You belong to him. He has words of adoration for you that do not change even if you wander off and get everything wrong for a while. You're still his inheritance that he enjoys. He loves you, looking at him in the face. Live out that identity. Live out those thoughts about yourself that he's having. Think those thoughts about yourself after him. And he sees and celebrates your strengths, your victories, the things you do that flow out of your union with him that is not nothing to him. To him that is as majestic as an army with banners. You're part of the biggest social movement in history. You are pushing back the tide of Satan's rule. You personally are winning victories that he rejoices him. You are unique to him. Dwell on, look for security in, look for recognition from him. Do not try and get it from other people. Do not try and find it in yourself. There is a deep well of affirmation and encouragement and just love for you in Jesus. Live that out. Jesus' thoughts of you should define how you think of yourself. Well, all of this happens, and her friends say, I love this picture, they say, 
who is it that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun? They basically say, after hearing this poem, it's like she's glowing from hearing how much she loves her. And that's what will happen. When you hear and know and dwell and in the power of the Holy Spirit, grasp that this is how Jesus feels for you, that he loves you coming back to him. He celebrates your victories. His people are a diamond to him, the apple of his eyes. You will be sent glowing into the world. You know, the Christians who have a history of doing good and right in the darkest of all places, that's just because they have known this deep well of being loved. And maybe you think, well, I'm not really the glowing light that I should be wherever I am. Don't try and glow more. Spend more time and energy and enjoyment in being loved by Jesus. Okay, second thing we're going to talk about, and here I'm treading on controversy, women's beauty is strength, okay? I'm treading on dangerous territory here. I am a man. I'm about to discuss female beauty. I'm going to make that worse by mostly talking to the men in the room. So throw things at me afterwards if you like. We've talked a bit in previous talks about what should be most attractive to us if we're a Christian is whether someone leads us to know God better. Well, here is something else, particularly for men about women. The strength which all women display and is often unnoticed is something that should be found beautiful and celebrated. There are two particular places where I think the Bible teaches men are given rules of leading. The first is marriage. But leadership in marriage is making sure that your wife's unique strengths are celebrated and honoured. By virtue of being a man, you have the power to create that environment. They should be loved by you and lifted up for everyone else to see. A wife should be so affirmed in her strengths by her husband that she launches into the world like the sun, like the moon. There is a sort of, I don't want to call it Christian patriarchy because I don't want to call it Christian, which rejoices in touching women so that men can look strong. Well, here in this love story, it's interesting. The song of songs, there is not a hint of that. Not the slightest hint. In fact, he goes to every effort not to shame her, even though he is the one who holds all the power. So husbands, if your wives are crushed by your expectations, rather than lifted up by your recognition of the things she is able to do, you are getting it wrong. Let's just define strength carefully. Strength is not ruled out if you have an illness or a disability or struggling with your mental health. In fact, as you'll know as you go through life, it's often people who are struggling with those things who are really showing us strength by just getting through life. So if you're simply, if you're not married here today and you're simply looking for companionship or a sexual relationship or to do what you want but with a partner, please do not get married. 
While both partners in a marriage are called to mutual service for each other, male privilege means this call strongly to men to say, get married if you're ready to give your life up, to lift up someone else. It seems to me, from observing as an old man now, that it's more often than not men rather than women who are sort of messing around in dating because they fancy being with someone. Stop messing around. Your job is to create a place where someone else can thrive. And let's talk about church. Our church doctrine, what we believe is, because we think the Bible teaches it, is that church eldership is for suitably gifted and charactered men. Someone once said to me, leadership in the hands of men? Well, you are a man, so of course you would think that. Well, if you think any of the men in this church who are leading because they want to um, lord themselves over women, it is the congregation's power to sack those people, and that's what you should do. But here is the task given to elders. Elders are called to serve others by making sure their strengths are celebrated. The leader of the church, the man, is to, uh, the men are to model to the world actually men doing what Jess Phillips wants, leading in a way that forms places that women flourish. And just to say, by the way, that while the elders are men here, it's the members of our church who make big decisions, and they are half women. So if you suspect for even a moment that male power in our church is being used to dominate or weaken or crush anyone, particularly if it's being used to do that to women, you must, as a congregation, use your spirit-filled prophetic voice to speak up. And if we don't listen, that shows we're not qualified to be elders. So just be careful how you, read, how you read all of that. I remember once discussing this with uh, a woman who came to our church for a while who really disagreed. And she talked about the church she'd grown up in. That was a church I happened to know. And she said, I don't just want to make tea and welcome people like the women in the church I grew up, grew up in. Well, I understood her feeling. There probably were problems with that church's practice. I don't want to go into them now. It's not my job. But here's the thing I'd say. I knew some of the women in that church, and they were incredibly strong women. They were the ones out in the front line bringing Jesus to community every day. They were the ones looking after their grandchildren because their children were in prison or had an addiction. That young woman had lots to work, learn from those strong women who agreed with this view. Perhaps the church wasn't celebrating those women as they should have been doing. There is a wider application here. Male power in the world is a fact. Some people think it's a random evolutionary result of biology. Some people think it's a result of the world being broken or fallen. Some people think God created it that way. But the truth is, it's a fact. So every time you find that as a man, the model we have from our groom, the Lord Jesus, who treasures and celebrates all of us, his bride, is that any power you have is to be used to lift up and celebrate the women around you. I wonder if the women in your workplace find you an intimidating 
or affirming presence. I wonder, I wonder, do your daughters know they are safe and will be celebrated by you? I wonder, do you tell your friends who abuse or intimidate or catcall women to stop? Of course, giving your way, yourself away like that takes great strength. But we have that strength from being united to Jesus, our groom. So let's go back to where we started. We've thought about what our relationship should look like and we've wandered far away from the amazing pattern that Jesus has given us in loving the church. Maybe you sit here today and think, I have not lived this out in any way or I haven't even tried. Here's what you will find. Jesus, our great groom, is where he always is. Maybe you've got this all wrong and it's time to come back to him and confess and find he delights in your strength in coming back. Dwell on him and his love for you. And you'll rise like the sun into your relationships, into your workplace, into your marriage, into your family. My dove, my perfect one, is unique. The young women saw her and called her blessed.